1998, author Spencer Johnson wrote a best-selling book titled, Who Moved My Cheese? And the story of, was of two mice, Sniff and Scurry, and two tiny people, him and Hall, looking for cheese in a maze. And when the cheese supply runs out, the mice leave without angst to find some more. Uh, but him and Hall resist, refusing to accept change that the cheese is no longer in the place they've known it to be for all of this time. Well, eventually, Hall overcomes his anxiety and ventures out of his comfort zone uh, in search of a new supply of cheese. At first, he's very timid, but then his confidence begins to grow. And before long, he feels so good about this new adventure that he pauses and writes this message on the wall. When you stop being afraid, you feel good. And that book, Who Moved My Cheese, has sold now worldwide over 30 million copies. And the reason is, is because uh, fear of change is a common struggle for so many people. So let's do a little survey in the room this morning. How many of you would openly admit, I do not like change? Would you just raise your hand up? Uh, about half the room, maybe a little less than half, something like that. So how many of you said, man, I, I'm energized by change? Raise your hand up and keep it up. The people with their hands down have just now identified you as a sociopath, all right? So they don't know what's wrong with you. Something happened, you were little, you fell, hit your head, I don't know. And so the reality is uh, some people do not love change. They're paralyzed by the fear of change. They're just like the same old, same old. And then other people, what I've noticed, they just kind of live their life three cheeses to the wind. You know what I'm talking about? Like the more change, the better. And what I find really exciting is when God in his providence unites those two people in marriage like he did Tasha and I. And I'm going to let you guess which one of us does not like change and which one of us lives three cheeses to the wind. Now, on the surface, it would seem as if these people are polar opposites to how they approach life. And there absolutely are differences uh, for sure. But I could probably point out from both, there's actually some things they have uh, in common. They may be wrestling with the same thing uh, in the level of heart's desire. They're just pointed in different directions. So let me explain that. For those who do not like change... The temptation will be to allow the ruling desire of your life to be comfort and control. And the challenge of that as a follower of Jesus Christ is that you may miss out on some missional opportunities because to join the movement requires you moving and making changes and making adjustments as God interrupts your life and at times upends your life to join him on the mission. But the reality is those who, who love change, uh, they can have the same heart desire as well. In the sense that this, that they're not motivated by a, a love for Jesus. What they're motivated by, the ruling desire of theirs, is they just like the new, new adventure, a new excitement, a new pleasure. And they're living their life not to be on mission with Jesus and wherever he takes them. They're living their life with, I've got to have something new. I've got to have something exciting. I'm living for pleasure and adventure. Now, here's what they have in common. Both of them are ruled, can be, by a heart's desire that is not bent on pleasing the Lord ultimately. And today we're going to see the type of change that uh, in Acts chapter 8 that no one desired. It was totally unplanned, totally undesired, but yet God uses it and God, as a matter of fact, providentially scattered them so that the mission could go forward. And so let me invite you to take your Bibles, your phones, your tablets, and turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. What we're going to discover here in Acts chapter 8 as we continue our series through the book of Acts is that God will upend our lives, if that's necessary, to keep the gospel moving forward. All throughout church history, all throughout early in the scriptures, 
followers of Jesus, those in a covenant relationship with the Father, have a desire to focus inwardly. We have a desire to what one guy called to gather in holy huddles and, and look inward, and God, when necessary, upends our lives and says, you, you've got to go out. There are people needing the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the movement has to go forward. And here in the uh, eighth chapter of the book of Acts, the church is beginning a transition. Remember I told you earlier that Acts is a historical book, and so it's kind of transition uh, in the life of the church. And so there's a transition happening uh, from the old covenant model, which was this, uh, come and see. And the transitions that's taking place now here early in the book of Acts is no longer just come and see, it is go and tell. If you read through the Old Testament in a chronological fashion, uh, the flow of timeline of events actually ends in uh, Second Chronicles. And in Second Chronicles, there's a command from King Cyrus to the Jew Jewish people to go up regularly and gather at the holy city of Jerusalem. Come to the holy city, come to the temple, come and see the glory of God. That was the old covenant, come and see. But now, here beginning in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 and continuing here in chapter 8, Jesus gave a new command that it wasn't come and see, it was go and tell. God's going to use the murder of Stephen and the threat of continued violence to push these disciples out and to scatter the gospel and to keep the movement going forward. Jerusalem will no longer be the magnet for everybody to come and gather at the holy city. Jerusalem will now transition into a missionary sending center where people are trained to preach the gospel and to go and make disciples. And here's what we're going to find in Acts chapter 8. In order for that to happen, God had to move some cheese. God had to move, initiate some change and bring some affliction and scatter them, or otherwise the movement would have died with them in their holy huddle. And guess what? That is still true today. God has the right and the divine prerogative at times to upend your life so that you can be on mission and join him in that. So Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. It's kind of the background, the context of what's happening here. So Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says this. And Saul approved of his execution, describing the martyrdom of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. See that twice already, the scattering that God providentially orchestrates? Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that City And so twice there in just eight verses, we see the providential scattering of God, the upending of their lives, unplanned, undesired, so that the gospel could move forward. So I want you to see here in Acts chapter 8 is uh, three comforts that cripple missionaries. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've heard us say this multiple times, you are a missionary. You're a missionary cleverly disguised as whatever it is you do in life, but make no mistake, you are a missionary cleverly disguised. Disguise. And so what are the three comforts that cripple missionaries? Number one, what we see in Acts chapter 8 is you and I are going to have to lay aside the comfort of familiar faces. In verse 1, we're introduced to this character named Saul who 
oversaw the execution of Stephen. And here's a spoiler alert. Next week we're going to witness Saul's life as it's radically changed with this encounter with Jesus on the road in Acts chapter 9. I mean, everything changes. His name changes. His identity changes. His very purpose in life changes. He goes from being the greatest persecutor of the church here in Acts chapter 8. says going door to door, dragging people out of their house, persecuting them, to being the greatest promoter and probably the greatest missionary that's ever walked the planet. But when we see in Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7 that God raised up Stephen, this incredible evangelist, one of the first potentially deacons there in Acts chapter 6, and we see him martyred from our human perspective, that would not look like a key step in the gospel going forward, would it? We'd say, oh my gosh, this guy's so gifted. He's an incredible knowledge of the Bible, this incredible speaker, the sermon he unravels there in Acts chapter 7. And so on the surface, it seems like Stephen's death would be a blow to the movement going forward. This guy's being faithful to preach Jesus and the resurrection, and he's killed for it. How in the world does that help the movement going forward? From a human perspective, there is no answer. But in the scriptures, the answer is back in verse 1. Go back to verse 1. What's it say? And there arose on that day a great persecution. What was the catalyst to the persecution? The, the death, the murder of Stephen. And so they, said, they just looked around and said, hey, if they're going to kill Stephen, then none of us are safe. And so it opened up a floodgate of persecution and a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And here it is. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Now, let's just rewind the clock a little bit. Back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, there's this key verse on missions. And it says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And that's where they're at. And can we just be honest? Left, if we're like them, left to ourselves, when he said, hey, we kind of like it here. We know everybody, everybody knows us, right? This is a place where everybody knows their, my name, right? But when you keep reading Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and here it is, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so when these believers are persecuted and scattered in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, where do they, they end up going? To Samaria, Exactly as what was predicted in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 is the beginning of the fulfillment of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And so apart from the persecution, apart from this scattering, it was undesired, unplanned. Guess what? They would have stayed in Jerusalem. They would have stayed in a familiar, comfortable place, a familiar, the church is getting established. It's a large church at that point. Lots of relationships, lots of power going forth. But God had to use the scattering of persecution so that the gospel would go into Samaria. Now, here's what we should learn from this. Maybe you've already figured this out in life. God does not do things often as we would do things. Have you figured that out yet? You ever prayed and informed God, offered him a little of your wisdom? You know, Lord... As you move this situation, if I were you, I'd probably engineer things for this way and for this outcome. But that's what we would do, right? But God is sovereignly, providentially working all things together for good, even the bad things, right? And in this persecution, this affliction, this scattering, God says, hey, this is what's necessary for your life to get upended so that the gospel can move out of Jerusalem and into Samaria. And in doing so, they had to lay aside the comfort of some familiar faces, and so when the Bible says in Romans 8 that all things not are good but work together for good, there's no question about it. And this is one of those moments in the history of the early church. And so there's no 
question about that truth, the only question that remains is when that happens in our lives. When God upends our lives and begins to scatter our comfort and our control all over the place, do we trust and submit to him in the midst of suffering or when difficulty and a lack of comfort and lack of control comes into our lives, do we run from God in bitterness? If the early believers in Jerusalem would have said, whoa, that's what happens when you're faithful? You didn't preach the gospel and you get killed? No, thank you, right? I didn't sign up for that. I'm just like, I, I just, I want to go to heaven, but, but I didn't know that was part of the deal. And they could have turned away in bitterness, but they submitted and, and allowed God to scatter them. And here's what's so incredible. I don't know if you see this in the text or not. This passage is the very first example of the church smashing through cross-cultural barriers. Moving outside the walls of Jerusalem into Samaria. This morning's text, we encounter Philip. We first met him in Acts chapter 6. He was one of the early potentially deacons there in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. He certainly was there when Stephen was arrested. And we don't know exactly how Philip ended up in Samaria, but he did. But what we do know is it was providentially orchestrated by God. And here's why we know that. If you're a Jew, you didn't travel to Samaria by accident. Matter of fact, there are places recorded in Scripture they would take the long way around so that they didn't have to travel through the Samaritans, uh, literally going a day's journey out of their way to travel through this region. So they, they hated the Samaritans. They were viewed by disdain by the Jews. They were technically half Jews, and so they were fully rejected by God's chosen people, the Jewish people. They were seen as lower than the Gentiles. I'd compare them to Cleveland Brown fans. Technically, they're from Ohio, but do we really claim them? Am I right? <laughs> Somebody said amen for the first time in church in their whole life. But here's Philip in Samaria preaching the gospel to people that he'd been trained to hate. And can we disagree that apart from God upending his life and scattering the church in verse 1, scattering them in verse 5, he would have never went to them. But God providentially pushed them to a place where the faces were not familiar. Think about how easy it would have been to be bitter and angry. Have a Jonah moment. God, the, the Ninevites, they don't deserve your mercy. They deserve your wrath. And God, how can you let this happen to Stephen? And what, who's next? Us? But God begins to scatter them, and Philip providentially submits to God's leadership. And guess what? From this moment in Acts chapter 8 all the way forward, God is calling people to lay aside their personal comfort. And all in the movement of the book of Acts, guess what? They start busting through all kinds of preconceived cultural barriers, bringing everybody nearby the blood of Jesus Christ over and over and over. And guess what? That requires some discomfort. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but we have a tendency to build relationships with people who look like us, who vote like us, who speak like us, and behave like us. Have you noticed that? And I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but the reality is we're living in an age of, of isolation and great division. Are you aware of that? And in times of division, the temptation is to only build relationships and seek refuge and solace in people just like you. 
But in order to live on mission, we have to stop building relationships with only people of the same race. After all, the Bible says there's one race, the human race. We have to stop building relationships based on the same socioeconomic statuses because here's the reality. All of us stand before God bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt, apart from Jesus Christ. We have to stop building relationships only based on political affiliations because Jesus is not coming to take sides. Jesus is coming back to take over and offer a new and better eternal kingdom. And so for these reasons, guess what? We launched a campus in Middletown. You go over there and and listen, there's all kinds of people over there who, who are totally different than me, totally different than you. And guess what? They need the hope of Jesus Christ. That's why we're starting Spanish-speaking campuses. I, I walk back there sometimes, and you know what they say? Hola! You know what I say back? Hola! Someone said, can you say anything else? And I'm not proud of this, but I do know how to order beer in Spanish. I don't know why I know that. I don't drink. Cervezas, por favor. Why are we planting more Spanish churches in the future? Because they need Jesus Christ. We've had conversations with an Indian church planter who's interested in using our facility in Mason. Why? Because those people need Jesus Christ. And the gospel, all the way early from the book of Acts, pushes people beyond the comfort boundaries of familiar face to people look like me and talk like me and vote like me and act like me. Why? Because we've all been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ is what the gospel preaches. And here's the reality. Let's just be honest this morning. Because up until now, I've been holding back, right? There are times it's going to get uncomfortable. There are times that we undoubtedly may offend people as we engage cross-culturally. And even more so when we proclaim that Jesus is the only way to heaven. But if you and I are going to join God in the movement that started here early in the book of Acts and is continuing on all the way until the return of Jesus Christ, guess what? You and I have to be willing to uh, gladly lay aside the comfort of familiar faces. And so here, God scatters the church. And where's Peter up? Preaching the gospel to a Sumerian. Laying aside the comfort of familiar faces. That will cripple you as a missionary. Second thing you see Here in Acts chapter 80, we also have to lay aside the comfort of blessing. Philip scatters with a purpose. He meets a guy here in Acts chapter 8 named Simon, uh, Simon the Magician. Pick up the story in Acts chapter 8 and look down at verse 9. It says, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Listen, Simon was David Copperfield before David Copperfield was cool, all right? Everybody else looked at this guy and said, wow, clearly God's power is on this man's life. And they're amazed by him. That is until Philip comes and starts preaching Christ. 
Philip offers them something greater than the magic that Simon could offer them. Philip preaches the good news of the kingdom and performs miracles in the power of God. And verse 12 says that many were believed and were baptized, including our friend Simon here, the magician. Read in verse 13, it says Philip was performing signs and great miracles. And it says even Simon the magician was amazed. Now we're going to come back to Simon here in just a, a moment. But here's something I don't want you to miss, this next part of the storyline. Uh, Peter and John are still back in Jerusalem training missionaries. And when they hear about the new church in Samaria, they, they get so excited, uh, they head down there to see things for themselves. And verse 15 says that when they got there, now, now listen up, all right? This is kind of a theological difficulty here. So verse 15 says, when they got there, the apostles prayed that these new believers might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, if you've been with us in this series, you're thinking, hey, I thought that beginning in Acts chapter 2 in Pentecost, when the Spirit of God came down, like cloven tongues of fire, and, and men you know, spoke in their own language, and then at that point forward, the Spirit began to indwell people, but here, it says the apostles coming down so that these people might receive the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just openly acknowledge, not all Bible teachers agree on this passage, and so, uh, but here's what it appears to me. As the gospel began to cross cultural barriers, there would have been some that said, this is not of God. Uh, we see that later in Acts chapter 10, it's the salvation of Cornelius. He says, hey, take the gospel to these people, and he says, oh, those people, the Gentiles, they're unclean, and God says in Acts chapter 10, don't call anything unclean which I proclaimed as clean. And so because there would have been so much skepticism that a, that a Samaritan of all people could receive the Holy Spirit, this is a unique case where God delayed the manifestation of the Spirit until the apostles could be there present so that no one would question that the Samaritans had indeed received the Spirit of God because the apostles authenticated what God was doing there. And so the Jews at this point, could no longer claim to be the only people that God was interested in. They would no longer be insiders and outsiders in the family of God. Everyone who trusted God was in full membership into his body. And that's still true today. Hear me clear this morning. There are no outsiders in the body of Christ. If you think that's good news, would you shout praise God on the count of three? One, two, three. Yes. The Bible says we've all been brought near by the blood of Jesus. We've all, 1 Corinthians 12 says, been baptized into one body. And so I told you we'd come back to Simon the magician. He sees how Peter and John are laying hands on these believers and the Holy Spirit coming down, and he thinks to himself, hey, that's a pretty cool trick. I want to add that to the magic show, right? Look at verse 18. It says, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was giving through the laying on of the apostles' hands, <laughs> he offered the money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He wanted to buy the power of God. Yeah, I mean, it seems absurd for him to say this. So what was going on in, in his heart, and what was he really desiring here? Here's the reality. He literally showed more interest in God's gifts or blessings than for God himself. Let me put it another way. He was more interested in the gifts than in the giver. And before we're too critical and throw stones at Simon, listen, when he realizes this happens all the time in our lives as well, 
How many of us are guilty of loving the comfort of God's blessings more than we love God Himself? If you're listening, say amen. God's goodness is not based on what He gives us. God's goodness is based on His character. It's who He is. But if we're not careful, guess what? We'll seek His hand more than His face. And sometimes God's goodness comes in the form of suffering and hardship. Why? Because it's helping us become more like Jesus Christ. But if we're motivated more by the gifts than we are the giver, then guess what? As soon as the blessings of comfort in our life are removed, we won't join God in the mission. We'll walk away in bitterness. I didn't sign up for this. This wasn't part of the deal. You see, Simon, one of the benefits of following Jesus without paying the cost of following Jesus, and because our hearts are deceitful, we're blind to the fact that you and I can do the same thing. Now, now, so what, what's, the, what's the alternative? Hear me this morning. The fix for this is not to hate every good gift in your life that God gives you. But the, the fix for this is not like, we, you know, we have a nice home, and so, you know what, we're going to join God as mission, let's go home and burn it down, praise God, Right? Scripture teaches that every good gift comes down from the Father of lights, James chapter 1, verse 17. So enjoy these gifts in the same way you'd enjoy a gift from your earthly father, but not to the point where you become more enthralled and find more joy in the gifts than you do in the presence and joining the giver in his missional work. And so the antidote is say, God, grow my heart. Where the thing that brings me the greatest joy is your presence and joining you in your mission and not just getting blessings from you. And if you don't ask God to do that, guess what? When God upends your life and scatters your life like he did here in Acts chapter 8 and all the blessings that you've worked hard to build and maintain and ensure and manage and all those kinds of things, if those things are removed in the midst of that scattering, then guess what? As a general thumb, we respond poorly when our idols are threatened. And so we've taught this many, many times that we learned by reputation, reputation, also repetition. I just spoke in tongues there. Blessing is more spiritually dangerous than adversity. You know why? Because in adversity, when all the props of a blessed life are stripped out from under me, in adversity, I turn to the Lord in utter and total dependence, which is what God wanted all along. And so you and I have to lay aside the comfort of blessings at times and be careful. Say, hey, listen, I'm, I'm just not interested in the gifts. I'm interested in the giver. Simon here in Acts chapter 8, he had no interest in the giver. He had total interest in the gifts. And he said, I like that. I'd like to buy that and add that into the magic show. You've got to lay that comfort aside. Here's the third comfort you have to lay aside. is the comfort of desirable circumstances. Look at verse 26. Verse 26, it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south of the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. Listen to this. This is a desert place. Now can I just tell you, if I was Philip, I wouldn't have liked the ending of verse 27 that said, This is a desert place. Like, I, what I would have wanted the Lord to say is this. This is a tropical place. Amen? Listen, if Jesus wants to raise up a missionary to the Caribbean, I may be his guy. I'm just saying. You know, let it be said on my tombstone, he faithfully preached Christ at the Four Seasons Resort in Bora Bora. He was faithful. 
That's not what's going on here, though. The angel of the Lord directs Philip to a place of undesirable circumstances, the desert. Now, why the desert? Honestly, I don't have any idea, but here's what I do know when studying Scripture. God has a history of working on people's hearts in undesirable places to prepare them for the assignment that he's called them to. Remember where God planted Israel after he rescued them from the bondage of the Egyptians where wandering in the wilderness for 40 years with the hopes that he would grow their hearts so that he could trust them with the promised land and all of its blessings. We see Elijah in the desert. We see Jeremiah in the desert. We even see Jesus in the desert. Matter of fact, this theme is so common in Scripture that we refer to our own seasons of difficulty and preparation as, as being in the wilderness or in the desert. And so these are unpleasant places and circumstances that are providentially used by God most often in a season of preparation to join him in what he wants to do. Now, let me be transparent this morning. Most of the time in my life, I resist those things. I'm just being honest. I've studied the Bible. I know how this works. I just, you know, all these things I've I've learned those things over the years, and, I know that, and so I know what God is doing, but just in my flesh, because I desire comfort, I desire control. Most of the time when God allows a desert season, puts me in the desert, most of the time I resist those things. I, I'm just being honest. I don't know there's ever been a time in my life where I've sat down and prayed, God put me in the desert. And if you're like, I pray that all the time, then hear me this morning as a prophet. You've got a drinking problem, all right? But yet over and over we see that. That's exactly what's going on here in Acts chapter 8. You ever been in a desert place? Maybe it's a job situation or school. Maybe a relationship. Just a place in your life where you ask God, why am I here? What are you doing? How long is this going to last? But look what God was up to. Here's Philip in the middle of the desert, and God pushes him right into the path of an Ethiopian official pulled over to rest stop. Look at verse 29. And the Spirit of God said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. Now, Philip could have said, are you kidding me? I'm here in the desert. It's hot, it's dry, I'm thirsty. I don't know why I'm here. Life was so much better back in Jerusalem. I had everything set up. I had my whole life planned out in front of me. You scattered me up. I got to preach the gospel to people I don't even love. And now here I am in the desert. In an undesirable circumstance. But I love what it says next. It says, Philip ran over to engage with this Ethiopian. You talk about cultural barriers that had to be crossed, different race, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different languages, but Philip sees this man, the Ethiopian eunuch in the chariot, and realizes he's reading from Scripture. And, Phil, and the eunuch says, hey, or Philip says, hey, do you know what you're reading? And the Ethiopian says, well, how am I going to know unless someone explains it to me? What he's reading from was Isaiah chapter 53. Remember, they only had the Old Testament at this time. And he's very confused. He had no idea what, that Isaiah was prophesying about Jesus. And just a few months earlier, Jesus fulfilled the very prophecies that he's reading about. So skip down to verse 34 in chapter 8. Verse 34 in chapter 8, the eunuch said to Philip, 
And whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Verse 35, and then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And the Bible says, if you read on Acts chapter 8, that he received Christ, he was baptized, and then he went on his way rejoicing is what the Bible said. Now think about this. We first met Stephen and Philip last week. They're selected to be the church's first deacons. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Then the very th next thing you know, Stephen's arrested and murdered. And then Saul the persecutor is wreaking havoc, literally pulling people out of their house and killing them for followers of the way. And because of that persecution, people scatter, unplanned, undesired. They're scattered, and Philip runs for his life. And for the main course, he ends up in Samaria. But he's faithful. And for dessert, he ends up in the desert. Can you imagine what his prayers must have sounded like? God, here I am being faithful, and this is my reward? Samaritans? Desert places? But instead of being blinded by bitterness, Philip lays aside his own comfort and commits to living on mission. Not a single bit of this was coincidence. It was all providential. God had to strip away every comfort Philip had in his life. The comfort of familiar places and faces and blessings and all those things to use God to get the gospel going forward. All because Philip chose Christ over comfort. And I don't know where you are this morning in your life and what's going on. And you may find yourself right now in a desert place and wondering why and how and how long. Can I just tell you that a better question to ask God in those desert places based on Scripture, based on what we see providentially happening with a scattering of the church in Acts chapter 8 is this. What next, Lord? You've allowed me to be here, so you want to use me, and I want to join you in the movement going forward. So, Lord, this is not what I desired, but you've providentially orchestrated this. And so, Lord, how in this desert season can you use me? And guess what? If you pray that prayer, then unexpectedly an Ethiopian may come through your life and say, hey, how can I understand unless someone explains it to me? And your eyes will be open and say, oh, Lord, I see what you're doing here in this desert place. We live in a fallen world. And so the question is not, will you have desert seasons in your life? The question is, will you redeem those desert moments for God's glory? Or will you sulk in bitterness and resist all that God wants to do in your life? Or will you lay aside the comfort of desirable circumstances? Wherever you're at right now in life, whatever's going on, it has been providentially orchestrated by a sovereign God, and he wants to use you to join him in his mission. You don't have to wait till life gets better. You don't have to wait till everything gets untangled. You have to wait till you get everything rearranged and fixed and in a better place in life and a better station, a better point in your career and better house and better neighborhood and better, all those kind of things. No, no, Listen, right where you're at, God has providentially allowed all of those things to play out. Why? So that you can join him on mission. But you're going to have to lay aside the comfort of desirable circumstances. And look around and say, Lord, I don't know why I'm in the desert, but here's what I do know. 
you can use me here. And I want to be faithful. But comfort pushes all that to the side. Now, maybe hearing that and thinking, oh man, I, could, I can't do those things. Building relationships with people that are not like me. Being willing to forfeit all my blessings in life. Being willing to be put in undesirable circumstances. I'm no Stephen. I'm no Philip. Let me just wrap things up this morning with some bad news. Left to yourself, you can't do these things. You and I, because the way our hearts are wired, will always choose comfort over living on mission. But here's the good news this morning. Jesus, once again, is not asking us to do something he wasn't willing to do himself. Listen to this. He left all the comforts of heaven to go cross cultural lines to save outcasts like you and I. He left all the divine privileges of heaven and opened himself up to being rejected and hated. He left the comfort of God's tangible presence and traded to be forsaken by the Father. He left the splendor of heaven to have a place, the Bible says, not to lay his head. And so he's done all these things, and if you and I belong to him, then guess what? Your hope for laying aside the idol of comfort does not rest in your willpower. The power for this type of thing is Christ in you. Jesus is the hero of this story. He's done all these things he's asking you and I to do, unwilling to go to the cross and lay aside all comfort so that the mission could go forth. There's no question about it. The question is, are you and I willing to do the same? Not in our own willpower, but through the power of Christ that lives in me. And so the question this morning is, are you willing to lay aside? Do you hold the comfort of your life loosely? And would you pray a scary prayer? Lord, push me beyond the boundaries of familiar faces. Lord, help me to lay aside the blessings of the life that I have if needed. And God, push me beyond the boundaries of desiring nothing but comfortable circumstances. And so the question is not about your ability. The question is your willingness. And so may the words of Isaiah 6 resonate in our hearts. Hear my Lord. Send me. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I want to ask you a couple things. In light of the truth that we've walked through this morning. Some of you, I believe, that God may be calling into full-time missions or local church ministry despite the comfortable life that you're currently living. I believe in a church of over a 1,000 people, God is calling people to serve him vocationally in that way. And you may be thinking, I've got my life established, everything's in order, I'm incredibly uncomfortable. Would you lay aside that comfort and respond to God's call in your life? God may be calling others this morning to have a new mindset about the desert season that you're in. God may be calling to, re to replace grumbling and unbelief with joyful expectation of how God wants to use you in this desert season. God may be calling some of you to repent of seeking refuge and comfort 
and control and be motivated by the fear of not joining God more than the fear of change. God may be calling some of you to build relationships with your actual neighbors who don't look like you, who don't vote like you, who don't talk like you, and who don't believe like you. And so right now, would you pray a scary prayer? Would you say, Lord, whatever you want to take away from my life, whatever comforts you want to remove from me, here I am, Lord, send me. Would you pray that right now, as scary as that is? Would you ask the Lord to remove all the props of comfort from your life, to join him in the scattering of the gospel to your neighbors and to the nations? Would you pray that scary prayer right now? Father, I pray this morning that we would realize that we're just foreigners on this side of heaven if we belong to Jesus. We're sojourners, the Bible says, and ultimately our citizenship is in heaven. And so God, I pray that Jesus Christ would work in our hearts and transform our affections to the point and the place where the thing that motivates us in life is not control and it's not comfort, but it's joining Jesus in the mission. And so, Lord, as scary as it is, whatever you have to remove from our life that is comfortable to scatter us, Lord, do it. And while it may be hard, and it may be unpleasant, and it may be undesired, God, one day, on the other side of eternity, when we see your face, we'll know then it was worth it. And so today... Help us to live by faith in that truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.